0: 13 Russian nationals, including 12 employees of a St. Petersburg, Russia-based company that carries out online influence operations on behalf of Moscow. Deputy U.S. Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. The
1: indictment alleges that the Russian conspirators want to promote discord in the United States and undermine public confidence in democracy. We must not allow them to succeed. The Department of Justice will continue to work cooperatively, with other law enforcement and intelligence agencies, and with the Congress to defend our nation against similar current and future efforts.
0: Indictments come from the special counsel Robert Mueller's office. His investigation into Russian election interference has led to the indictments of several members of the Trump campaign and administration staff. U.S. Attorney General is ordering an immediate review of how to respond to warnings about potential mass killers. Action follows an admission by the FBI that it ignored a tip-off about the gunman who killed 17 people, wounded 14 others at a school in the state of Florida Wednesday. President and Mrs. Trump visited the hospital treating some victims of that mass shooting. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa hailed a new dawn for his country and promised to fight corruption following the resignation of his predecessor, Jacob Zuma, who was plagued by corruption scandals. In the state of the nation's address to parliament, Ramaphosa struck a note of optimism and outlined a vision for the country. This is VOA News. Turkey has proposed to the United States the Syrian Kurdish YPG militia withdraw to east of the Euphrates River in Syria and that Turkish and U.S. troops be jointly uh, stationed in the country's Monbij area. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is on a two-day visit to Accra. He met with his Turkish counterpart for talks and then spoke to reporters about shared objectives in Syria. Our two countries share the same objectives in Syria. The defeat of ISIS, Daesh, secure and stable zones, and independent and unified Syria. We recognize the legitimate right of Turkey to secure its borders. We take it seriously when our NATO ally Turkey says... It has security concerns. As to Afrin, we call upon Turkey to show restraint in its operation to minimize the the casualties to civilians and avoid actions that would escalate tensions in that area. Turkey launched an air and ground assault last month in Syria's northwestern Afrin region to drive the YPG from the area south of its borders. Accra upset over Washington's support of the YPG, the top U.S. ally in the fight against the Islamic State. Taliban, in an open letter to the American people, has called for dialogue in the prolonged Afghan war, claiming increased U.S. military airstrikes have not retaken any land from their insurgency. The Taliban released the letter at the time that the United States has stepped up airstrikes in support of anti-insurgent ground and air operations by Afghan forces under President Trump's new war strategy to break the military stalemate with the Taliban. Former Oxfam official at the heart of a sex abuse scandal has made some mistakes, he says, when working in Haiti and has denied paying for sex with prostitutes. Reuters' Scarlett Vitvanovich reporting.
2: Speaking to Belgian broadcaster VTM, Roland van Havermaren admitted being in a sexual relationship with a local woman but denied giving her any money.
3: But that was this-
0: It was decent. It was just the same as meeting a lady in Belgium. I have got a girlfriend here now, by the way, and if I then fell in love with her, there's nothing wrong with that.
2: Van Halvermaren says he resigned his post running the Oxfam operation in Haiti because he had failed to exercise sufficient control over staff accused of sexual misconduct. The charity, one of the world's biggest focusing on disaster relief, has neither confirmed nor denied any accusations relating to Haiti, but it admitted that an internal investigation in 2011 confirmed sexual misconduct occurred and apologized for failing to tackle the problem.
0: That is Reuters' Scarlett Botanovich reporting.
1: That's the latest world news from B O A.
2: This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America on this edition of the program, Spotlight on Africa, South Sudan, the DRC, Kenya, and South Africa. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. Earlier this month, the United States imposed an arms embargo on South Sudan in an attempt to coerce the salva Kiir regime to halt violence, which has forced one-third of its citizens to flee their homes and another two million to the brink of famine. South Sudan has been embroiled in a civil war since 2013 when salva Kiir attempted to eliminate his rival, then-South Sudanese Vice President Riek Machar, who is currently in exile in South Africa. Similarly, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, we witness both political and humanitarian chaos. President Joseph Kabila, in power since 2001, was supposed to have stepped down by the end of last year. He did not. Meantime, an outbreak of ethnic violence in Uturi province in the northeastern part of the country has prompted an exodus of more than 22,000 refugees crossing into Uganda. In Kenya, opposition leader Raila Odinga refuses to accept the second round of election results, staging an alternative swearing-in ceremony, provoking the government of Uhuru Kenyatta to crack down on the press and other political freedoms. And in South Africa, President Jacob Zuma resigned after more than a week of intense pressure from his party, the ruling African National Congress, to step down. The 75-year-old leaders, nine years in office, have been marred by economic stagnation and numerous allegations of corruption. Joining us to discuss Africa hotspots are two distinguished regional analysts. J. Peter Pham is... Vice President for Research and Regional Initiatives and Director of the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council, and that's a think tank based here in Washington, and Monde Muyangwa. She's Director of the Africa Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Prior to joining the Wilson Center, Monde served as Academic Dean at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies at the National Defense University. Both panelists join me here at the VOA Broadcast Center in Washington. Welcome to the program. Pleasure Thank to be you. with you. Thank you, Carol. Well, Jay Fum, let me begin with you. Let's talk about this U.S. embargo on arms to South Sudan. What's significant about this? Because the United States doesn't have a great deal of defense trade with South Sudan. So what impact or value will it have?
1: Several things, Carol. First, at the end of the Obama administration, after a bit of reluctance, the Obama administration— finally sought an arms embargo through the United Nations Security Council. Now it failed because Russia and China opposed a broad arms embargo. And then the Obama administration didn't pursue it further. What's significant is the Trump administration imposed a U.S. arms. I mean, it only affects U.S. entities. But it joins the European Union, which has long had an arms embargo on South Sudan. Now, as you rightly point out, there aren't that many U.S. companies selling arms to the South Sudanese combatants, whether it be the government or the various rebel factions. However, what is significant is the few U.S. companies that are in that business provide some very specialized services, including personal protection and communication and other very strategic services, especially to the government of Salva Kiir. And so this will, once the embargo is in place, it will make it illegal for those U.S. entities to continue providing those services. That not only weakens him in terms of military capability with his opponents, but more importantly, it sends a very powerful signal to the political elites, as well as the ordinary people of South Sudan, that the U.S. has taken very seriously the fact that this government is an obstacle to peace and it is actually a danger, a continuing one, to its own people.
2: Turning to you, Monde Moyangwa, for your take on the U.S. arms embargo to South Sudan. Do you think, as J. Peter Pham said, it sends a powerful signal to the political elites in South Sudan? But to what extent will it indeed change behavior on the ground in order that we can get out of this terrible political and humanitarian Situation.
4: Thank you, Carol. I absolutely agree with uh, Peter on this one. I think the Trump administration is to be applauded for this step on uh, South Sudan. Who is speaking? And the fact that it's the United States now imposing the arms embargo is absolutely critical. That's the first point. The second point I think we would have to look at is the changing political landscape, both internationally and within the region. One, the Trump administration lifted sanctions against uh, Sudan, who has been a key factor for the other side in this conflict in South Sudan. And so if Sudan wants to continue collaborating with the U.S. and continue to make progress, we might see the limiting of arms floor to the other side as well. So that also helps sort of put more pressure on the two parties to come to the table. The third thing that has happened here, I think you see an alignment of forces. For a long time, the United Nations, the African Union and IGAD have threatened sanctions and an arms embargo but have not followed through on it. For the first time, the new chairperson of the AU at the AU Summit last month said it is time for the AU to take action against those who violate their own people with impunity. And I think a lot of us read that to mean South Sudan amongst others. So the stars are aligning here and there's an opportunity. It's still going to be difficult. But in addition to the points made by Peter and the larger political landscape in the region, I think there might be an opportunity to actually get something out of this arms embargo to force the parties to the table.
2: Well, speaking of that, forcing the parties to the table... Peter Pham, the conflict has been going on since 2013, 2.5 million refugees, almost 2 million displaced internally displaced people, the hope of a brand new country dashed in a sense by its own leaders. Are you optimistic that this step that Washington has just taken could lead to greater pressure from the UN Security Council and to what extent will that also bring pressure to bear?
1: It would be ideal if the UN Security Council would step up to the plate to live up to its promise and its own threats when it invoked the UN charter to demand a cessation to these hostilities as threatening the peace and security of the region. So it would be ideal. But is it necessary or likely? That's a different question. But what is important is perhaps a coalition of the willing, those countries that are willing to take responsibility to step forward and ratchet up not only an arms embargo, that's a first step. But I think we need to more seriously sanction individuals who are prolonging the conflict. And there's been a great deal of research done about how political elites on both sides of the conflict, but predominantly on the government side because they control the resources and the credit, have enriched themselves, squirreled away money in neighboring countries as well as overseas, sanctioning them as individuals and seizing them. We're talking about billions of dollars. Finally, we need to look also beyond and there's an element of this in the national security strategy that was released by the Trump administration in December, which is that we will partner with countries that are capable partners and the ones that are not or the ones who use aid for their own political ends to prolong conflict. We may have to cut them off, and it's something... We're not there yet, but I think we have to seriously wonder if we're enabling conflict by allowing the current government to play. So I think there's a lot at stake. This is a first step, but there will be more to come.
2: Turning to you for your take, again, Monday Muyangwa, on South Sudan, whether or not the UN Security Council following suit would be important and what other measures need to be taken. And what about the role of Riyak Mashar, who's now exiled in South Africa? Is he a legitimate player here?
4: I think you'd have to say, first and foremost, that he is. He has a lot of followers, just like the other side does as well. So you can't just discount him. I agree with Peter that it would be great if the UN uh, supported uh, the sanctions and the um, the embargo. We don't know that it will actually happen. But in addition to the arms embargo and the targeted sanctions, I think it's very important that we have a very clear roadmap and milestones on the diplomatic and political end to accompany the embargo and uh, the targeted sanctions. Absent that, if we just think that the arms embargo and the sanctions are going to get the job done, I think we'll be starting all over again. We'll be spinning around in circles. So... As we work on the embargo, the targeted sanctions, let's also work on a political roadmap and a diplomatic um, solution to the problem.
2: Turning back to you, Peter and turning now to the Democratic Republic of Congo, another politically induced conflict. President Kabila has been in power since 2001. His term was supposed to end in December 2016. It did not. Elections were supposed to take place last month. Now they're being postponed for December 2018. Uh, what's the state of play, and why are we uh, at this place once again with a unresolved conflict and refugees just flowing across the border?
1: Several things are going on. One is, first and foremost, we have an, we're now in an extra-constitutional situation. President Kabila's second and final term, as you mentioned, Carol, expired in December 2016. Now, one can argue that the political will of the country, the consensus was reached in the so-called St. Sylvester Accord or December 31 or 2016 Accord brokered by the Catholic bishops of the country, which agreed that elections weren't going to be held right then, but they would be held by the end of 2017. And in exchange for that delay, there were certain conditions that were supposed to be met, including lifting of political prosecution of certain political opponents in the courts, the creation of a transitional body to oversee implementation of the accord, freeing up a political space, almost none of which has happened. And the bishops have walked away largely in disgust from this. And we're now in 2018, and we have a promise of elections at the end of this year, unlikely to occur. So uh, simply because a lot of the, the conditions for free, fair elections have not been met. And they want to introduce now complicating technologies in a country where you don't have enough roads, paved surface to go from one end of the country to the other. They're adapting electronic voting in the United States. We have trouble with that. One can imagine in a country without power, well, roads. How this is going to work? So all sorts of complications being introduced, and as a result, we have a number of conflicts breaking out. We have repression, violent repression of peaceful dissent including in recent weeks attacks in churches on religious ministers and congregants gathered to peacefully protest the overstay of the president and so we we're in a situation where i think things may spiral very quickly unless there's a political will to move credibly toward free and fair elections
2: monday your take on what's going on in the drc and why president kabila who originally said you know he would Step down simply does not. And what makes anybody think that elections that were supposed to take place last December will actually take place this December if the conditions are not in place and conflict continues, refugees fleeing the country? Sure.
4: I think one of the things that we have to do is put this in its historical context. Uh, The DRC has not experienced one democratic election in its post-independence era. And I think for every leader that has come into the DRC, they have taken a leaf out of the previous leader's uh, playbook to see how long they can push this. Two, I think we have to put this in its broader um, continental context. The African continent is suffering from what I like to call the third-termism disease, And you have some leaders, not all, who want to see how long they can extend uh, their stay in power, whether that means changing uh, the constitution to allow for a third term, or if it means ignoring the constitution to do what you want to do. So Kabila is part of a larger group of African presidents who are doing that. And I think internationally and even on the continent, we have to think through how best do we stop this trend. And then I think it's just the... Political office has become a key way of enriching oneself, and the Kabila family's enrichment from political office has been well noted, and so that's one of the reasons why he refuses to move on. And then finally, I would say there's also the fear of uh, what happens to him if he leaves office, loses uh, an election, or just leaves office because his two terms are up. And so I think for the people of the Congo, uh, for the the people of the DRC, it's going to be how do you balance providing an exit plan for him with accountability uh, for his rule over the last few years. And that's not always an easy thing to do. But I think those are some of the issues that we need to look at.
2: Well, we will look at those issues in a separate program. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the the weeks ahead, but first, you're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. My guests are J. Peter Pham. He's Vice President for Research and Regional Initiatives and Director of the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council, and Monde Moyangwa, from whom you just heard. She's Director of the Africa Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. We're discussing Africa hotspots, South Sudan, the DRC, and soon Kenya and South Africa. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available for free download on iTunes. You can find the download by clicking on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com Encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol Castiel VOA or connect with us on Facebook. Here's a shout out to a loyal Facebook fan, Masood Rana from Bangladesh. If you want to hear your name on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, J. Peter Pham, of course, we need hours to discuss all these issues, but let's turn briefly to Kenya with, you know, Raila Odinga, who lost the election but doesn't concede that he did to Uhuru Kenyatta, he held his own uh, swearing-in ceremony, which was uh, covered and then was repressed, the coverage of which was then repressed by the government. W- what's going on here? A couple things are going on. This is... Part of a as Monday wisely reminded
1: us, we have to look at these things in context, and part of this is one of the things that has handicapped or stunted African politics for all too many years has been the personalization of politics. Political parties are oftentimes not vehicles for ideologies or different world vi- views of of policy, but vehicles for the personal ambitions of individuals. And in the case of Kenya, you have Rilo Dinga, really, if you look at it, the, sort of a heroic figure, uh, who in his history, of fam- a distinguished political family, he fought for a number of years against a authoritarian government, but he's coming to the end of his life. This was his la- effectively his last chance at gaining the top office in the country. And he lost in the first round uh, of the election, but contested... Uh, that arguing that there was fraud, fraud. The Supreme Court threw out the results of that. Now, that was a controversial decision, but it threw out the results. Another election was held. There was a call for a boycott, and there's all sorts of ins and outs, and we've discussed this previously on another program. But he lost, and the courts upheld the uh, the result of that rerun election, and he's unwilling to accept. And this is where I think the the, the ins and outs History will resolve that, and and scholars will resolve on what actually happened. But we're we're, we're I think the for the sake of the country, the hit it's taken economically, politically, et cetera. One has to there someone has to, you know, call the final shot. And in this case, the courts have ruled, but he's unwilling to accept that, and that's that's
2: the problem. So Monday Muyangwa, notwithstanding any faults or shortcomings on the part of Uhuru Kenyatta. Uh, he won this mm-hmm. second do over, um, but Mr. Odinga doesn't want to accept. How long can this go on, and what are the implications for Kenya and its economy and politics?
4: I think a number of points I'd like to make on the Kenya situation. I absolutely agree with you. The results were certified. Um, They have a president in Uhuru, Kenyatta, and I think we have to accept that. Uh, That's uh, the first point. And unfortunately, uh, as we are seeing, not just in Kenya, but also in other parts of um, the continent, democracy needs to be accompanied by uh, accepting a culture of losing, That's becoming increasingly difficult on the continent for two reasons. One, I think there are challenges, and in many cases rightfully so, to the integrity of the electoral process. So I think that's part number one. Number two, there's also a winner-take-all type of approach to African uh, politics, uh, where those who lose are completely excluded uh, from uh, governance and from benefiting from the the fruits of uh, that governance. And so I think those are two issues that need to be uh, played out. I understand um, Mr. Odinga's uh, point And I think the symbolic inauguration of uh, the people's president should be taken as just that, a comment on two major things, that Kenya needs to do more to fix the irregularities and weaknesses in its electoral process that were exposed during the first round. There has to be a commitment to working on those so that by the next round of the elections in 2021, we'll have a process that has much more integrity to it. I think that's number one. Number two... I think a lot of Kenyans would agree that what we see in Kenya today is a very divided society with very, very strong ethnic fault lines. Kenya cannot afford that for the reasons that uh, Peter just mentioned, but also for its geostrategic position that it occupies within uh, East Africa. So I think there's an opportunity here for uh, President Uhuru. As he goes into his final term to think about how he brings in the opposition to lay the foundation for addressing those fault lines, which often leave people outside of the two major ethnic groups that have occupied political uh, office since independence Uh, being perceived as benefiting more than everybody else. So how do you create a foundation that allows for more inclusion in terms of the benefits of nation-building to extend to all of the other ethnic groups? I think those are two issues that the Kenyan government needs to uh, focus on.
2: Once again, Monday adds a very important context, and we hope to continue discussing the situation in Kenya in a a separate program in the uh, months ahead. But All right, well, as we close... On South Africa, again, Peter Pham, a lot of political turmoil. President Zuma recalled by his own political party, the ANC. Then Zuma resigned, despite his threats to the contrary. This just one hour before he would have faced an embarrassing, messy, no-confidence vote in Parliament. We have a divided ANC. We have political uncertainty. How do you think this is going to play out?
1: Again, a very strategic country. Africa's
2: largest
1: GDP per, ca- per capita, probably, depending on whose math you're looking at, the largest GDP total in Africa or the second largest, but a very strategic country, one that punches well above its weight, but yet racked by not just political conflict within the governing African National Congress, the ANC, but really underperforming. We have unemployment rates officially at just under 28 percent. The real number is probably much higher than that. Youth unemployment even higher. So 20-some years after the end of apartheid, the advent of democratic rule, the promise of the new South Africa hasn't yet been seen by many people. There's a desire for that. There's Hunger, but there's also frustration. And within the ruling party, there's been a lot of corruption. State capture is actually used by courts and by official government bodies as part of the vocabulary. President Jacob Zuma has been, throughout his career, dogged by all sorts of corruption and other allegations, but now I think it's becoming a matter of survival for his party, which is why the leaders of the party demanded his recall precisely because he's now becoming a danger to the
2: long-term sustainability of the party. Indeed. So, uh, Jacob Zuma, a liability to the ANC, we have Cyril Ramaphosa, who was elected as the ANC leader in December. He wants to, you know, start on a clean slate. He wants to sort of divorce himself from his, that is, Zuma's wing. On the other hand, how do you see it, Monday? the future of the ANC? Can they survive? And is this an opportunity for the opposition parties, the Democratic Alliance or economic freedom fighters?
4: The African National Congress the ANC is fighting for its political life. And this really has to do with a trend that we have seen throughout Southern Africa of liberation-era parties, whether we're talking Mozambique, we're talking uh, in Zimbabwe, and now South Africa. We have liberation-era parties that have lost touch with the needs of the people, and the people are letting them know, and hence their unrealized dreams of post-apartheid South Africa. If the ANC is to survive... Obviously, they do need a new leadership, new vision, I think. Cyril Ramaphosa might be able to uh, take the party in that direction. But I think it's the opposition parties are also going to have a big say in the future of South Africa, where South Africa goes. The Zuma situation has been a real test for South Africa's democracy. It has been a test to gauge how people feel that their government has delivered on the promise, Mandela's promise. They have not delivered. And it's really forcing parties, being the opposition of the ANC, to step back and figure out how do we better connect with the needs of our people so we can realize uh, the potential that we have.
2: So the ANC has a fight on its hands. Well, we certainly will be discussing all of this in the weeks and months ahead. I want to thank my guests, for their terrific insights. J. Peter Fahm, Vice President for Research and Regional Initiatives and Director of the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council. And Monde Muyangwa, Director of the Africa Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Thank you both for your wonderful insights. Thank, Thank you, Claire. Encounter was produced in Washington thanks to Rebecca Ward for booking our guests, our engineer, Wuzuber Altayev. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America.
1: Clyde's Restaurant Group in Washington, D.C., bring you live from the Hamilton, performances showcasing musicians and the many genres of music born in America and enjoyed around the world. It's definitely an interactive thing that we do, you know. We feed off the audience, the audience feeds also us. Hopefully we all end up having a good time.
3: it's best when you're improvising and you're improvising in a group of people and everything is just really totally connected and and this thing is emerging and evolving and happening as you're doing it you can really be transported to another place um place without words a place without anything except you know i hate to sound corny about it but touching something higher and uh That is the greatest thing about playing jazz. I don't think there's a culture in the world that doesn't have music. I love world music and every single culture has come up with a great way to express itself. Music is an international language because, especially now we're talking instrumental music, because we're dealing with sounds more than words. And When you're dealing with sounds, you're dealing with a spectrum of music or a spectrum of communication that's beyond anything that words could possibly explain. So when you go on stage and you play a solo, you're not only just playing notes, you're playing sounds and tones and frequencies. And you're also showing facial expressions while you're doing it. So people are feeling a lot more from you than you could possibly explain through words. So I think that's why when we go to places where people don't speak our language, they love us because we're speaking their language anyway, the language that they would prefer to speak if they could. the good fortune of playing every kind of venue and each one of them has a certain quality to them you know in the early days we were we were sort of rock stars there for a while we were playing 5,000 seat halls and and big outdoor amphitheaters and there's something terrific about it Uh, but a place like we're playing tonight here at the Hamilton um, really does give you a better chance to connect to your audience The audience isn't some grand thing that's out there and and it's kind of abstract. The audience is right there in front of you. You can see the smiles on their faces and you can feel their energy and ultimately with a band that's an improvisational band that needs to feed off of, of stuff, having that tight audience contact is really great. So I like the small places.
5: din elle vivo Without
3: We get asked about the name a lot. Where did we get the name? I heard that name first in high school biology. It was a microscopic algae. Looked cute under a microscope. Just turns your pool green otherwise. Um, and we were working at a little bar in Buffalo, New York, where the band came from. The Club owner, it was 3 in the morning. I had had several Jack Daniels. In fact, the club was called Jack Daniels. And uh, he was telling me that unless we came up with a name for the band, because it was just jazz every Tuesday night, It was going to be over. We had to have a name. So I flippantly remembered this silly little microscopic organism and said, call it Spirogyra. He went out, bought a sign, misspelled it, put it on the sign. That's been the name ever since. Misspelled. (laughs) Very silly.
0: Washington, this is VOA News. I'm Steve Norman reporting. U.S. federal grand jury investigating Russian meddling in the 2016 election has indicted 13 Russian nationals, including 12 employees of a St. Petersburg, Russia-based company that carries out online influence operations on behalf of Moscow. The indictments come from Special Counsel Robert Mueller's office. His investigation into Russian election interference has led to the indictments of several members of the Trump campaign and administration staff. U.S. Attorney General ordering an immediate review of how to respond to warnings from potential mass killers. The action follows an admission on Friday by the FBI that it ignored a tip-off about the gunman who killed 17 people and wounded 14 others at a school in the state of Florida. Gun control laws were on the minds of many attending a vigil for the victims at the high school where the killings occurred. Scott Israel is the local sheriff.
1: If you're an elected official and you want to keep things the way they are and not do things differently, if you want to keep the gun laws as they are now, You will not get re-elected.